This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and so delighted to be here with you for the first official podcast of spring. Isn't that delightful? Spring is finally here, and I, for one, could not be happier to welcome spring and what will hopefully be a much more normal summer than last summer was. Later on in today's episode, I will be answering a question from reader Robin Leader. Uh, That rhyme is not intentional, by the way. The reader's name is Robin Leader, and she's written in with a question that I will be answering later on in today's episode. And if you have a question that you would like to hear me answer on a future episode of Curl Up with a Cattail, or if you'd like to leave a comment that you'd like to have me address, or if you want me to give you a shout out by name, or if you want to subscribe to this podcast, I certainly hope you will if you like what we're doing, um, or just learn more about the books I've written or anything along those lines, please hurry on over to GwenCooper.com. That's my website. And that's G-W-E-N-C-O-O-P-E-R.com. And that is where you can find out all that kind of good and fun stuff and um, contact me. There are contact forms and and just a delightful extravaganza of all things Gwen and Homer related. Um, I may be making it sound a little bit more exciting than it is. It is just a website. I'm, I'm just, uh, I don't know. I found myself out on a limb conversationally, and I wasn't sure how to back off of it. So I thank you guys for, for listening to me ramble. I'm sorry. I, uh, I'm a little distracted. Clayton, stop it. Um, my, my cat, Clayton, is being a little bit of a handful this morning and, and is kind of hopping around my chair and and clawing at my tush, trying to get my attention. Oye, oye, Clayton, no se hace. No, no. Um, he uh, and he's being a little bit of a handful. That you know, the great thing about doing a podcast for other cat lovers is that, of course, when these sort of cat-related kerfuffles happen, Clayton, stop. Um, at, at least you you guys have some sympathy for me. Uh, for my lapses in in professionalism and 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 the hijinks of my cats, uh, you you may have noticed, by the way, uh, my my little secret is out that I do I do discipline my cats in Spanish, and there is a reason for that. Uh, so, you know, I grew up with dogs. I always grew up in a dog household, and as you guys know who've read my books, uh, the first cat who I adopted was Scarlet, who I adopted in the mid-90s with my boyfriend at the time, George. Uh, George was Cuban. We lived together in Little Havana. George had been born in America, so he, he spoke English flawlessly. He was completely bilingual. And the two of us for almost exclusively spoke English to each other. Uh, my Spanish was was much closer to fluency back then than it is now. It's it's just really sad how it's deteriorated. It makes me very sad. Um, it's a shame to have known how to do something at one point and then not know how to do it anymore. Anyway, George's family had cats, his parents. 
And they were really the first, these were the first cats that I'd spent a lot of time with, the first cat owning family that I spent a significant amount of time with. And again, George's parents, uh, when we were all together, they spoke almost exclusively in English to each other, to us. Uh, they, they certainly never wanted me to not understand what was being said around me or, or amongst themselves. But when they had to discipline the cats, they did so in Spanish. And when George and I adopted, so the first two cats I had were Scarlet and Vashti. I was living with George with both of those cats. And I, in what is probably not a surprise to anybody listening to this, I am not much of a disciplinarian. I, I do not rule with with anything even approaching a firm hand. I mean, if anything, the, the cats kind of rule over me. And there's very, very little that the cats want to do, Clayton, that I'm not apt to let them do. So insofar as there was any discipline in our home, it came from George. And George disciplined the cats in Spanish because that was how he was used to disciplining pets in general. And so when George and I broke up, it then fell upon me. Somebody did have to occasionally discipline. I mean, you know, certainly the cats do things that are that are genuinely annoying or potentially even dangerous that they do from time to time. You, you do have to stop them from doing something, even if they really like it and really want to do it. And so it, it fell upon me to, to do this. And so I disciplined those cats in Spanish because I figured that was what they were used to. It was how I was used to hearing them disciplined and it was how they were used to hearing discipline given. And then I just got used to disciplining cats in Spanish. So now Clayton and Fanny, even though they have never lived with, with any native Spanish speakers or in a native Spanish speaking household or really even in a native Spanish speaking neighborhood, uh, they are used to being disciplined in Spanish. And, and I, it is a, a, a habit that I maintain to this day. So I always like to say that while I myself am not bilingual, um, the, the cats kind of are. And, and isn't that nice for them to, to know a second language is, is a lovely thing. It used to be something I could lay claim to. And, and now, sadly, no longer. I should point out here, by the way, that the Clayton has been a little bit of a handful uh, for the past few days. So yesterday, Lawrence and I decided to watch the four hour. I, I can only assume that this was some sort of a fit of some sort of bored masochism. Lawrence and I decided to watch the four-hour Zack Snyder Justice League. And I do want to say, because I feel like I, I've talked a lot about comic book movies and TV shows, I do not want to give the impression that that we are, that this is the majority of what we watch or that that we are fanboys or or anything. Maybe Lawrence was when he was younger. I definitely was not. But there's so little that that qualifies as an event these days. You know, man, a year ago, we were going out to dinner and to theater openings and to birthday parties. Uh, the last thing that we did actually before all the shutdowns, we had a friend, a dear friend who was in from California. She started embarking on a new career as a jazz singer, and she'd been invited to perform at this legendary, legendary New York jazz club. It was such an exciting thing for her. It was so exciting for us to be there. I guess if there was something that had to be the last thing we did before shutdowns started, that was it. But the point being that, that, you know, there used to be new restaurant openings and new plays and and friends' birthday parties or or singing performances or whatever it was 
these were like everybody else. I'm not describing really much of anything that that would not apply to anybody else's life. The, the we had these events, and and now we have um, no events except for the premiere of a four hour director's cut of a comic book movie that we didn't even really like that much the first time around. And let me just say, by the way, that the the four hour Justice League for for those of you who who don't know, and I'm not super familiar with Zack Snyder, but he's the guy who directed 300, among other things, and and so that might be if you're not into the comic book movies, maybe. And I know that 300 was taken from a comic book, according to Lawrence. But anyway, maybe you saw that. But I will say, if you're familiar at all with with his style, you know it's a lot of slow motion, and I it is my opinion. That if there were not so much slow motion in this movie, it would not be four hours. It would be about 90 minutes. Like, like I think there was actually 90 minutes worth of action stretched out through the use of slow motion to four hours. Anyway, what this has to do with the cats, though. So Clayton is is a very present cat, as you've probably inferred. And, and by that, I mean he's always around as was Homer. You know, Homer was also a very present cat. He was always, almost always with me. Um, Clayton is much more present, though, insofar as it's not just that he's there. He demands constant sort of input from you. He he really just always wants to be petted. He always wants your, your hand on him. He always has to be not just near you, but in some sort of close physical contact. And so I was, wa- we were watching this movie yesterday, and I was sitting on the couch on like the chaise lounge extension you know, with my legs stretched out and, and Clayton is lying next to me and I'm petting him. And, and Clayton gets very involved in what is happening on TV when Lawrence and I are watching TV together. Uh, he's, he's really into watching TV. I, I don't know what he gets from it or, or how much of it, if anything, he understands. But if he is awake, he's paying attention to what's happening on the TV. And even if he's asleep, things filter in. So... You know, whereas with my first three cats, they really did not care at all what was on TV and it didn't affect them at all. There was nothing. There was no TV show that could be loud enough or or movie that could be loud enough or scary enough or have weird enough things happening that it upset the cats. Uh, Clayton, for example, has a very hard time with the opening credits for Mad Men. Uh, I don't know if you if for those of you who have watched it, you know, in the opening credits, there is the man falling out of the window, the, the falling man. And then at one point. You see a shot from under, and it's just a silhouette. It's not an actual man. If you've never watched Mad Men, in the opening credits, you see a silhouette, like a cartoon silhouette of a man falling out of a skyscraper window. And then at one point, the perspective shifts so that you're kind of underneath the man who, the the silhouette of the man who is falling. And and so it looks like he's falling towards the camera. And it scares the bejesus out of Clayton every time to the point that, that we really can no longer, when we do watch Mad Men, you know, when we decide to watch a Mad Men rerun, we make sure to skip right past the credits because it is terrifying for Clayton. That that falling man is terrifying. And so the experience of watching th- this new Justice League yesterday was, uh, was not exactly calming for Clayton. The, the explosions, the sound of the fights, all of it, it, it made him so jumpy and so scared. And, and we did have to keep pausing the movie so I could stroke his head and say, it's okay, Clayton, it's just a movie. Nothing is going to hurt you. Uh, Lawrence at one point suggested that we you know, get, put Clayton out of the room. And even aside from the fact that our living room doesn't have doors, really, so I'm not sure how that would have been 
accomplished. I I can't imagine that Clayton would have been any happier being locked out of a room that the two of us were in. Uh, historically, that has not sat very well. That is not a turn of events that, that Clayton has done very well with. So he spent a lot of the movie, most of the movie, burrowing into my leg or burrowing into trying to burrow his head into my belly or or hide behind me or or crawling into my lap. He was so scared. He was so scared of this movie. And I have to say, I I can't honestly say that it was worth it Uh, for the the toll that it took on Clayton. You know, the question becomes, and was it worth it in the end to have watched this four hour movie that scared the bejesus out of Clayton. And and I, I'm afraid I have to say that my answer is probably no. Um, I, I don't think it was. I do not think it was worth it. Although, it again, it should be noted that Clayton and Fanny are extraordinarily skittish cats. At least they seem that way to me. And And granted, I have only lived with five cats in my whole life. My first three cats were not especially skittish cats. I mean, sure, if I was baking something in the oven and had not cleaned it out well enough since the last time I used it, causing the smoke alarm to go off, it was the apocalypse as far as the cats are. They, they scattered like roaches in a room when you turn on the lights. I, and that I totally understood. But in, in, a, in the day-to-day sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill, ordinary noises and vicissitudes of life, they were not skittish cats. Homer, who you would think being blind would be maybe the most sensitive or apprehensive when it came to noise was actually the least skittish of them. Homer was the only one, he's still the only animal, uh, cat or dog, who I've ever lived with, who when the vacuum cleaner comes out, did not flee in terror for his life. Homer was always very, actually, I know, I had one dog who would attack the vacuum cleaner, now that I think about it, uh, who would very angrily attack it. I think she thought maybe the vacuum cleaner was trying to eat the the whole family. Um But, you know, Homer was not even afraid of the vacuum cleaner, which is very rare in an animal. It really is. He was always more intrigued than anything else. Whereas Clayton and Fanny are so skittish, they will run and hide. You know, if if they're hanging out with me in the bedroom and Lawrence comes up the stairs and walks in, they they run like they've never heard Lawrence walk. And Lawrence's tread is definitely heavier than mine. He is larger than I am. He's a man and, and he's just bigger than I am. And so and we have hardwood floors. And so the sound of him walking towards us is certainly a louder tread than when I walk. But it's not that loud. He doesn't sound like the boogeyman. And they've been living with him, you know, basically their whole lives. You would think at a certain point they would recognize the sound of his footsteps and not still every time he walks into the room or approaches the room, they they flee in terror. They're halfway under the bed before they're like, oh, it's just Lawrence. I don't have to be scared. It was just Lawrence. And, and then they come back out. It is a never-ending source of mystery to me why they are so skittish, because seriously, nothing bad has ever, ever happened to these cats. They were two weeks old when they were found as kittens by a kindly gentleman in his backyard. And he was involved, as it happens, with a foster. So this was a man who's involved in cat rescue And these two kittens, as two or three-week-old kittens, ended up in his yard. And he immediately brought them into the foster network that he volunteered with. And they ended up in a foster home with a woman who, in my communications with her prior to adopting Clayton and Fanny, 
you could tell, just loved them silly. And then they came to live with me. And basically, their whole lives have been a one long cocoon of love and warmth and security. Truly, nothing bad has ever happened to them. So I'm not sure why they are so skittish. I will grant you smoke alarms and the vacuum cleaner. Lawrence walking up the stairs, I, I find to be very odd. And and also, Clayton just so <laughs> obsessed and afraid of whatever's happening on, on television. Uh, I guess if I had it to do all over again, though, I, I would not have watched the, the four-hour Zack Snyder's Justice League, for whatever that means to to those of you who are considering watching it yourselves. If, if you're a really big fan, I, I would say go for it. Uh, but do keep in mind that it is four hours of your life that you will not get back, and it might terrify your cats beyond the telling of it. So there is a you know potential for a very high toll to be exacted as the price of watching this movie. And on that note, and before heading into the the next part of the podcast where I answer my reader question, I would like to take a moment to thank those of you who have joined me on Patreon over the past week. And just to explain, so I, I'm making kind of a big change. And I'm going to discuss this a little bit more in a future episode, but I'm making sort of a big change in in my career and my work that I do. And I'm leaving traditional publishing and and striking out independently. And there are various reasons for that. Again, I will talk about this at a later time. Although if you go to my Patreon page, you can you can read a little bit more about this. Um, it is scary and yet exciting. I'm very excited about the project that I am working on, but definitely something where I need your support in order to be able to do that work. And so Patreon, it's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So it's like the word patron, but with an E in the middle. Patreon is basically a program that allows you to become a patron of the art of an artist or creator whose work you admire. And in addition to being able to support an artist you whose work you like, you get all kinds of cool and fun things in return. So on my Patreon page, for example, uh, you can find out how you can have your name included in every new book that I publish, your name and your cat's name. There is a bonus podcast that I do with Lawrence that is available for Patreon subscribers, photos of, of Homer that have never been published anywhere else and never will be published anywhere that are not shown on social media, one-on-one -on -one chats with me, opportunities to, to ask me questions, talk to me directly. So all kinds of fun stuff in return for, for being a member slash supporter on Patreon. I encourage you guys to check it out. Uh, my Patreon page is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Gwen Cooper. And I'm now going to read off uh, the new patrons who have joined since last week. And I apologize in advance, by the way, if I mispronounce any names, please forgive me. I'm seeing these in writing. Um, these are not – I have not been lucky enough to speak with most of you in person. So please feel free to write in and correct any mispronunciation of your name if I do mispronounce it. Lene Waite, Lisa Calarisi, Cindy Pierce, Dawn Brown, Christine Sorensen, Maddie Chitwood, Mark Blanchard, my pet sitter who takes care of Clayton and Fanny when we go out of town. And, and it is wonderful to hear from you, Mark. Irene Mall, April Gutierrez, Steph Suglian, Joanne Latko, Jim Kurak, Diane Damasio, 
Sandy Batselli, Angie Mason, Karina Fogelberg, Catherine Rigsby, Rosie Ray, Lorna J. Stemmery, a Rachel with no last name, but who spells it R-A-E-C-H-E-L. So that's pretty distinctive. So Rachel, hopefully you know who you are. TJ Murphy, Julie Brandt, Christy Taggart, Gypsy Ray, Melanie Paradise, Debbie Forsman, Susan Heineke, Brianna Goodwin, Breeze Ellis, and Donna Harvick. And I would just like to add to Rosie Ray, um, I love your name. And I certainly hope that at some point in your life, somebody has sung to you or, or played for you or otherwise brought your attention to that great Edison Lighthouse song, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, because uh, I, yeah, when I hear your name, I think of that song and I love that song. Coming up in a few moments, I will be answering this week's question from reader Robin Leader. So sit back, get comfortable, and just hang on a few more moments for more Curl Up with a Cocktail. So much for sticking around for the second part of today's podcast, and hopefully, you guys enjoyed that song. Um, if not as much as I did, at least a little bit. But I, I do love that song. That is one of my favorites, and I felt a little like a DJ, you know, as I was kind of fading out, and then the music was fading up just at the right part, and and it was all very exciting for me. Um, but but now we are back to talking about cats and specifically answering today's question from reader Robin Leader. And Robin writes, where do you get the inspiration for your books? I am especially interested in the backstory behind Love Saves the Day. And so, Robin, I'm going to ask for your indulgence and actually the indulgence of everybody else listening, because I'm going to kind of work backwards. And I will talk about Love Saves the Day, but I'm going to talk about that last and and start with Homer's Odyssey, because, I, you know, what I do think is really interesting uh, for me writing about cats, as I look back now, the, the books that I've already written about cats and, and the books that I intend to write cats is that it, it seems like most of my career as a cat writer anyway is is almost accidental uh, insofar as the idea almost never seems to be mine either to write the books or, or the ideas for what the books should be about. And, and I will expound upon that a little bit. So those of you who have read the sequel to Homer's Odyssey already know 
that my initial inspiration for writing that book came when I was reading a newspaper article about Dewey, the library cat. And I know that many of you have also read the book about Dewey and enjoyed that book as well. And I was reading an article in the newspaper. It was in 2007. I had just published my first novel, which had no cats in it. It was a novel about South Beach. Uh, There were no cats, had nothing to do with cats, a very different kind of book. And I was trying to think about what my next book would be. And, And I didn't have any really firm idea. And I was reading the newspaper one day, and I saw this article about a book deal for a memoir about a cat who lived in a library in a small town in Iowa. And it really was a light bulb moment for me. First of all, it had not even occurred to me that that was a thing that was an option, that you could write a book about your cat. But when I saw that that story, when I saw that newspaper story, it, it wasn't just the idea that I could, you know, that I was looking for a book idea and that I had cats that I could conceivably write about. It just came to me so instantly that Homer's story was such a great story and could really potentially make for a great book. It, it was just this wonderful crystalline moment of certainty where it all came together for me and I knew it. And again, those of you who have read My Life in a Cat House or the sequel to Homer's Odyssey, you may know that my agent, the agent who represented my first book, was not at all sure that this was a good idea. And what he actually said to me was, and and I quote, but why would anybody want to read this? This was what he wanted to know about my idea for Homer's Odyssey. And it was a question that haunted me for a couple of years as I first worked on a proposal for Homer's Odyssey and then went and looked for another agent. Because, of course, when my agent said that he thought it was a terrible idea for a book that he did not think anybody would want to read, it was really one of those moments in life where you you have to say to yourself, I, I know this person is a professional. He knows more about the industry than I do. I pay him for his advice. And yet his my gut feeling is running exactly opposite to the advice that I'm getting. And so which do I listen to? And I to actually, to tell you the truth, tend to come down on the side of listening to the professionals. But in this case, I really was just so certain that this was that this was going to be a good book, that Homer's story was going to be a great story. And and not even taking any credit for myself, just really that, that Homer himself had such a great story and had lived such an amazing life. And and so, yeah, so that was the, the story. That was how I got inspired to write Homer's Odyssey. And then I would say that the sequel to Homer's Odyssey, My Life in a Cat House, uh, the true stories that made up the monthly story subscription series, that series, not series, for Curl Up with a Cat Tail before it became this podcast, back when it was a monthly story subscription, all of that grew out of Homer's Odyssey once there were these stories about my cats that were already out there and people who were already invested in our little fur family. Uh, it, it just made sense to keep writing, especially because I they, my cats continue to inspire me. I guess that ultimately would be the the real answer to the question, how, where do I get the inspiration for my books? It is for sure my cats in all of their doofiness and silliness and sweetness and stubbornness and crankiness and and their irreducible individuality. Truly, cats are like fingerprints. There are just no two that are even a little bit alike. And um, and and so that is is really 
my true inspiration, I would have to say. But getting back to the question and giving a little bit more of a detailed answer. So so that that's the story. That's how I get the inspiration uh, behind my nonfiction, behind the, the memoirs and, and the true stories about the cats. Uh, the Book of Possum has a little bit of an interesting backstory, actually. And, and I don't know how many of you guys have read that. That's probably my newest book now that I'm thinking about it at this point. So last year, uh, a few months into quarantine... I wrote a new book and and released it pretty quickly, and it's called The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. And basically, it is a a collection. The the title, the subtitle is very descriptive of what the book is. And so it's a collection of these little 200 to 2,000 word essays, 101 of them to be exact, about why we love cats so much and and all the amazing things about cats that make us so happy. Certainly, there are more than 101. I actually, believe it or not, had to to pare it down uh, quite a bit to to conform the book to 101. Um, And this book might actually be my favorite of all my books, to tell you the truth. And just because I think it's it's so fun. It's such a fun – it was so much fun to write it. I, I wrote it in a couple of months, and I had a great time doing it. And and I think it's just such a fun little read. Lawrence calls it a bathroom book. My husband calls it a bathroom book, not to be insulting, but because he says that it's it's one of those books that you can read in the bathroom. And and I guess I cannot really argue the point, although it's not the first thing I would say. But the story behind that book is that Lawrence and I, and this was our second to last time out before quarantine started. It was Lawrence's birthday. We had gone into Manhattan. Uh, we we spent the day at the movies. Lawrence is a, is a movie nut. We actually did this thing. It, it, we're, we're such children. So we went to one movie and then we sneaked into a, another movie in the same theater. But we bought lot, lots of candy and popcorn at the concession. So we, we certainly gave the money to the theater. Uh, it was like a daytime thing. I think it was a Tuesday. And, you know, Lawrence and I being writers who who – Work from home, and even before the pandemic, worked on our own schedules. We we get to play hooky every so often, and and so that's what we did. And and really, again, like kids. Um, I'm a little embarrassed that I told you guys that we sneaked into that second movie. Please don't hold that against me. I'm generally a very law abiding citizen. Anyway. So it was we went to the movies. We went out to dinner. It was the end of a lovely day, and we were waiting at Port Authority for our bus back to New Jersey from Manhattan. Because what better end to a lovely day than hanging out at Port Authority? It's it's tough to think of a better topper to the perfect birthday celebration. Uh, so we were waiting. We were early for our bus. We had maybe half an hour to kill. And so we were at Hudson News which is, of course, a, you know, a national chain of, of airport and, and train and bus station bookstores. And we were killing time in Hudson News. And I was looking at one of the front tables and I saw this book and it was called The Book of Awesome. And I'm going to bungle the, the subtitle, but it was something like The Book of Awesome, Bakery Air, Finding Money in Your Pockets and Other Simple, Brilliant Things. And it was a really good subtitle. I, I wish I could remember it clear, more clearly now. But basically, it was a book about all of these very little things that happen in your day that even though they're very small little things, they make you very happy. For example, you're waiting in a really long line at the grocery store checkout, and then the cash register 
next to you opens and you're the first one in that new line. And that's awesome. That's a, an awesome thing when that happens. So it was a book full of things like that. Or, you know, again, you put your hand in a coat pocket that you haven't worn since last winter and you pull out a $20 bill, which, by the way, happens to me all the time. I'm the worst. I, I shove money into my coat pockets. I totally forget that it's there. And it's great, though, because then at the beginning of the next winter, I, I find all this money in my pockets. And I, and I like to think of it as a little gift that past me leaves for future me. And and past past me is really very thoughtful. Future me always seems to take, but but past me is is quite the giver. So, but as I was standing there looking at this book, and and again, it was really one of those lightning bolt of inspiration moments because I thought to myself, why should there not be a book of you know? Here's this book of awesome. Why should there not be a book of possum? And it would be about all these amazing things, all these great things, you know, simple but amazing things about cats. And and again, there was really, uh, you know, I had this idea in February and it, it the book came out in May and it, re- it actually would have come out sooner except for the fact that I was down with what I believe uh, was COVID uh, in the middle of all of that. So I lost several weeks to just being in bed and, and generally feeling horrible. But when I got out of bed, it was actually the greatest thing to get out of bed and start working on because it it just, you know, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a really fun book to write and and hopefully... The people who've read it agree that it is a fun book to read. But of course, the real question here is the the story behind Love Saves the Day, which is my one cat novel. It's my second novel and and my the only cat novel that I've written. And and again, you know, I, I there's only so much credit I can claim, at least for the initial idea. So what happened was after Homer's Odyssey came out and and it was very successful. And Random House had published the book, and they wanted to know what I wanted to write next. And I had an idea for a book, again, that was not a cat book. It was a nonfiction book. I, I, I won't go into it now, except to say that it was an idea that I was very interested in, and I ended up writing a 120-page proposal. So the proposal was half the size of an actual book. And I wrote this whole proposal and I gave it to my agent and my agent brought it to my editor and to the editorial board at Random House who read it and came back to my agent and said, this is interesting. What we think would be interesting is if Gwen wrote a novel from a cat's perspective. And the important thing to keep in mind here is that at this time, the books The Art of Racing in the Rain and A Dog's Purpose were out and were huge successes. And so obviously, Random House was was looking to plant their flag in into the cat version of a story like that. And it was not my idea, uh, but I did understand that when Random House said, we think it would be interesting if what they meant was, you will, you will write this, you will write this book. And that was fine because as soon as the truth is, as soon as the idea was presented to me, I found it to be a very interesting idea and, and I was on board. And so the first thing I had to start thinking about was if I'm going to write a novel from a cat's perspective, who is this cat going to be? Who, what is this cat's personality going to be like? What is his or her worldview going to be? And I knew that I was going to end up basing the character on a cat that I knew because I, I felt that to imagine myself into the mind of a creature so different from me, I, it would have to be a cat who I felt like I knew very well. I felt like the only way the cat would live for readers was if it was a, a cat who actually lived. 
I did not want to base the character on Homer, uh, partly because I'd already written a book about Homer and partly because I felt if the novel was going to be narrated from a cat's point of view, then the cat should probably not be blind, that that would be it could be interesting, but it would ultimately probably be limiting for for readers to understand what was happening in the cat's world. And I would not have wanted to write a Homer who could see because that that would sort of feel like a betrayal, if that makes any sense. Um, almost like I, I was trying to imagine or, or wishing, you know, Homer would a Homer who was not blind would have been a completely different cat. And I never, ever once wished that Homer was different than he was. And I would not have wanted to write a character based on him who was any different than he was. I also felt that Vashti was not a, a good candidate because she she's such a sweet girl. She just loved everybody. And, and so that's almost too forgiving a, a point of view for a character. But Scarlet, my my surly, surly girl, Scarlet, who was so opinionated and so stubborn and so judgmental and who did not take to people easily and did not suffer fools gladly, but I, who I knew underneath all of that, she had this good, loving, sweet heart that you had to work so hard to get to. And I, I felt there. So there were two things I felt, which was first, I, I really wanted to vindicate Scarlet. Scarlet was always the cat who I had to justify loving to other people. And people would say that that cat is so mean. She's so distant. She's so aloof. And, and I would always find myself saying, you don't know what she's really like. You don't know what she's like when we're alone together. She really loves me, even though you don't see that. All these things that that actually sound like descriptions of a really horrible, abusive relationship, except they were true. They were all true about Scarlet. And I know that everybody listening has had that relationship with at least one cat in your life. The, the cat, the, the relationship that for whatever reason, nobody else understands. And so partly I wanted to to write, I wanted to write Scarlet in a way that would vindicate her to the world. And I also felt that because Scarlet, you know, Scarlet and I were not, had not fallen in love with each other at first sight. If you have read My Life in a Cat House, then you know that Scarlett and I fell in love with each other over a period of time. It was really a relationship that we both had to work our way into. And that just made so much sense to me as a starting off point for a book would be a cat who was capable of of loving and being loved, but who was going to have to do a little bit of work to get there. Then the question became, what would this cat's milieu be? You know, what would her, where would she be? What would, what would be, what would her setting, what would the setting around her be? What would, who would she be having these relationships with? And at this time, Vashti was very ill with chronic renal failure. Uh, those of you who've had a cat who has been through that know that, that it is a, it, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to, to deal with. And one day I had to take her to the vet's office. Her vet was located in the East Village on 9th Street and 1st Avenue, which if, if you're not from New York may not necessarily mean anything to you, but it's in the heart of this, what traditionally, what had actually once upon a time been a very crime-ridden neighborhood in the movie Taxi Driver. It's, it's the neighborhood where Jodie Foster as a young teen prostitute is living. And, and then it became this very bohemian, creative, artistic community. 
very young, very inexpensive, very hip. It would eventually gentrify to become ridiculously expensive so that essentially nobody could afford to live there anymore. So a very a neighborhood with a very interesting history. It was actually also not too far from where my own great grandparents, when they first emigrated to a, the United States in the lower and li- were living on the Lower East Side, it, it was all part of a, the same sort of large low, lower you know East Village Lower East Side community. So a lot of history there. And I was at the vet with Vashti. She had had a a, a very we had had a very bad night. I I had been up all night with her. She had just been so sick all night. It was very bad. And I brought her to the vet and they took her back to the emergency waiting area. And I was not able to go in with her, which was okay because to tell you the truth, I I, I needed I needed a break. You know, if, if you've ever cared for anyone, whether it's a pet or a person in your life who's been chronically ill over a long period of time then you know that that there are days where you are so proud of yourself for how strong you're being, how much you're able to do, how much better job you are doing at this than you would have ever imagined you could have done. And then there are days where it's the exact opposite, where you are just positive that you are failing, that you can't do anything right, that you are of no use, and and that the, the person or the animal you love is suffering unnecessarily because you are so incompetent and so inept. And, and this was one of those days for me. And, and so I needed, to, I, I needed to take a walk. I needed to clear my head. And I was walking and I made it out from 9th Street and 1st Avenue to the corner of 8th Street and 2nd Avenue, which was at the time, and, and it is no longer there, but it, it sat, you know, sadly, but it had been there for 40 years, was a, a, well-known vintage store called Love Saves the Day. If you are a Madonna fan or if you're a fan of the movie Desperately Seeking Susan, Love Saves the Day is the vintage store where Madonna trades her pyramid jacket for a pair of rhinestone boots and thus sets into motion a wacky and improbable chain of events. So that's Love Saves the Day. And again, it was one of those moments that a lot of things connected for me. I think partly it was because I, I... I really was so sure that day I was failing. And then to look up and then just see this big sign that said, love saves the day, felt very providential to me. It, it, it felt like like almost like God or, or the universe or someone putting a hand on my shoulder and, and letting me know that that I was going to be okay, that that my love for Vashti was something that could save the day or, or at least that it was a strong force. Sorry, I'm going to compose myself a little. But but in that moment, it, it felt very meaningful to me uh, to see that sign. And and again, I just had in this instant uh, this this idea of of a story about a, a cat, but also a mother and a daughter. You know, a mother who is raising her daughter in in this bohemian, crazy, artsy, sort of out there on the edge community, and a daughter who just wants a normal life, a normal mom and a normal life and and does not want all of this artsy, bohemian, unstable, uncertain kind of thing. And so there's this this tension between the mother and daughter and this cat who becomes the bridge between them. And then I started doing a lot of research on the Lower East Side and the East Village in the 70s and the 80s, because that was when I sent a chunk of the story. So there was all this music and, and art and and things that I found very interesting that found their way in. But the heart of the novel 
was this cat and who became this bridge between this mother and daughter who had this difficult relationship. And I loved that the cat who was the bridge in this difficult relationship was herself a difficult cat. And and they all needed to learn how to love each other. And And so that's what the book became about. And I will say that Scarlett herself actually became ill while I was writing this book. She developed a sarcoma that would eventually take her from us. And I I had this idea, and I know it sounds silly, but that as long as I was writing this cat who was based on Scarlett, that my Scarlett would have to stay alive, that that the act of writing a cat, this cat who was essentially Scarlett, or, or that in writing this cat who was essentially Scarlett, that I was writing Scarlett into the world if that makes any sense, which I realize it does not. I, I believe they call that magical thinking, but I really did have this idea that as long as I was writing this book, I, I was keeping Scarlet alive by writing about her. And and she did live all the way through the completion of the book. And and for many months afterwards, uh, she we, we lost her a couple of months before it was ultimately published. But I will say that Love Saves the Day is is ultimately, I feel, a monument of love to both Scarlet and to Vashti, you know, Homer had his book, and then Scarlet and Vashti got their book. And and so all three of them really do continue to live in my stories and in the books that I write and the stories that I tell. And again, like I said before, ultimately, my true inspiration for the cat stories that I write are my cats themselves and and all of you who read them, who listen to me tell these stories and who read the things that I write – because it is just such an amazing feeling and, and so much fun as a writer to know that there are people who actually do want to read the things that you write. It, it is why we why we all do it. So thank you so much to Robin Leader for writing in and asking that question this week. And again, if there's a question that you would like to hear me answer on a future episode of Curl Up With a Cattail, head on over to GwenCooper.com. That's my website. Subscribe to this podcast. Leave a review on iTunes or, or wherever you And that you concludes to this to episode of Curl Thank Up with so a much Cattail with Gwen here, Cooper. And I look forward Don't to forget to invite you your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts. Head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me. And don't forget to hug your cat today.